can have a seat. If I haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thank you so much for being here and, and hanging out and being a part of our community this morning. Uh, as Rich said, last week we started a brand new series on communion, on this ordinance and on this sacrament that's been given to the church. I, I don't know about you, if, if well, let me say this, if you've been coming to Grace City for a while, you know that we do this at the end of our services, every single week. We've done that for about two and a half years now. And uh, there, there, and this is where I say, I don't know about you, there have been times in my life where when I come forward for communion, there are sometimes where it's very meaningful, very thoughtful. I'm reflecting on Christ, reflecting on, on, on what this represents and, and how it ministers to me still. And uh, there are some times where I interact with it and I just feel uh, just that nourishment to the soul. I, I, I feel as though God works and, and, and just ministers to me in and through the sacrament. Then there are other Sundays where it's like, okay, I'm done preaching. I'll you know, say a closing prayer and then we do the song and I'm like, all right, it's time for communion. So I'll go up, get my bread, put it in the cup and then uh, come back to my seat. And that's just it, right? It's, it's just kind of like, it's time for it. It becomes almost ritualistic. It's, it's uh, sometimes I even do it and I don't want to say flippant, but just there's not a lot of thought to it. And, and so seeing that kind of drift in my own life, in my own heart, I don't want that happening to the church and just from having some conversations with you all, I, I thought this was a time where we needed to kind of reset this a little bit so we can understand all that's happening with this practice. Why does Jesus give this, uh, give this to the church? Uh, how does it impact our life? How does it impact our life of faith? How does it impact our church? Um, we know that Christ's commands are both for our good and for his glory. So how do we experience that in and through communion because it is a simple act i mean it's it's just bread and a cup right i mean that's 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 all we're doing but as we saw last week this is a very theologically profound act that we take when we talked about it, every time we do it we're, we're preaching a sermon communion is a symbol of christ's past present and future work it, 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 it really is past present future ministry to the church the bread represents the body of Christ given. The cup represents the blood that was shed for the sacrifice of sin. And so communion is this picture of Christ's work which redeems and reconciles humanity and gives life to those who believe in him. It's, it's, a, it's a paragraph that's full that we can understand in just a few short sentences. But man, this has repercussions and ramifications across uh, across our individual lives and across the life of our church. And so we're going to pick up the conversation uh, where, where we ended last week. And we talked about how communion, again, demonstrates that reconciling work of Christ in, both in the, in, in the individual and in the family of God. Because the Lord's Supper is to be a place where a family reunion happens. As this is a, a family where we're all bound together, uh, sharing together in the grace of Jesus. And if we are sharing in the grace of Jesus, stick with me on this, if we're sharing in the grace of Jesus, then there should be an awareness of sin, a confession of sin, if you will, right? A repentance of sin, and then trusting in that grace, trusting in that forgiveness that he has given. And that's why I would say in this way, communion is both our judgment and our hope. Communion is both our judgment and our hope, because I think if we let it, communion can speak to what's off in our life. It can speak to what's broken, to what's missing, but it also points to the solution. It points to who has made us whole. In communion, you see both the sacrifice of our sin and you see the grace that provided it. And so with that, communion, in communion, we see both the justice and the mercy of God. 
So let's get back to the text. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you missed last week, uh, I'll set the context for us. And let me say this, the next two, three minutes is going to be a bit of an overlap. Uh, so if you were here, it's going to be a, 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 some summary. And if you weren't, it'll, it'll bring you up to date on, on the conversation and where we are. Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians is... Um, I almost said it's hilarious to read. It's not hilarious because it's tragic. But the church is just so far gone. Like, it's completely off the rails. It's wrong doctrine, wrong lifestyle, wrong practice. I mean, there's just some jacked up stuff that's happening. And, and so from really cover to cover of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing one rebuke after another. And, and I guess that's my twisted sense of humor. It's like, I mean, it's just like, it's just like just ripping into them in, in some degrees. And there are some parts of it where it almost seems funny. But again, if I was on the receiving end of it, it would be very sad and tragic. So don't know why I got off that tangent. But Paul is coaching them up. From start to finish in this letter, he's warning them to get better, trying to help them see their sin, confess their sin, and grow in their Christ likeness. And, and, and so he has harsh words for them, even in and around this practice of communion. Now, a, a, again, another bit of cultural context to help us understand. The first century church, oftentimes when they observed communion, they would have a, a, they would have a large meal associated with it, like a potluck supper, kind of family gathering meal uh, is what would happen. They would have the meal and then communion would just be a part of it. Well, the Corinthian church was having that meal, uh, but they were kind of made it an exclusive event in that those who brought food would be able to eat and those who didn't bring food couldn't share in the meal. And so what you happened was in the same church, people that said they were bound together in faith, bound together as, as a community, the, the, you had the, the people that could provide were, were feeding themselves, but the poor and the afflicted, and the poor and the afflicted by poverty, they weren't being welcomed in. They weren't being provided for by the family of God. They were being ostracized and being left out. Paul hears about this and lights them up, basically. First Corinthians 11, 17 through 19, some verses we looked at last week, Paul it, it says, like, look, when you gather, you're doing more harm than good. You know, just how devastating would that be if that was a description of Grace City, right? When we gather, we damage the kingdom of God more than we, more than we serve. And so Paul lays into him for that. But basically at the core of his critique, it's, hey, there are divisions among you. You are not one. You are not unified in the church. In, earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul reminded them of how uh, when we come for the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder of joining oneself to Christ. He writes this in chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Paul's trying to help them see in, in chapter 10 about how communion reminds us that we are one. We are joined together. Uh, one, one body uh, one, uh, calls us back to our oneness in Christ. So then, let's do the work with this. If we are one in Christ, that means the communion is one gift that God has given to his church to help pull us out of an individualized approach to faith. We mentioned this some last week. I'll say not just an individualized approach to faith, because there is that aspect of it. Because, but here's the deal. When we view faith just through an individualized lens, what happens is you're focused on just on, on my relationship to Christ, how he speaks to me, and, and how he speaks in my setting, my situation, my circumstance. And then the next step of that is, okay, well, if he's speaking to me in my circumstances, maybe he's speaking to others who are in a similar circumstance. So now you start looking for people that are coming from your same background, same context, maybe vote like you, look like you, educated like you, income like you. And so what happens when we begin to view faith through an individualized lens is you gravitate towards those who look like you. 
And next thing you know, faith actually can become an expression of narcissism and self-love. And, and it's, it's viewing faith just through an individualized lens. That's happening for the church at Corinth. Um, they, they, that's happening for the church at Corinth. They were forming these divisions. They were forming these factions. And once more, when you gravitate towards those that are just like you, and it's this expression of, of self-love and narcissism, what can actually happen next is it blinds you to the needs of those around you. And this is, this is where we come back into 1 Corinthians 11, 23-22. Uh, so then, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes, uh, homes to eat in and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Okay, again, so those that could bring food brought food, and and they were bringing everything for the feast, but they weren't allowing the poor to share in it. But it's even more than that. When they're sharing in the feast, they're indulging to excess, right? They're becoming drunkards and gluttons, eating everything, not allowing anything to go to anybody else. So they're being drunkards, being gluttons, and the one that's on the outside looking in is feeling the pains of an empty stomach. And, and, and Paul, hearing that, knowing this, fires off these questions. The, the, we went through some of them last week, but this, do you despise the church? Do you despise the church? Paul's like, look, you're, you're feasting while your brother and sister is famished. Do you despise the community that you have? Are, are, are you okay? Like, do you despise the community of faith? Do you despise the church? And it's fair, right? I mean, that's a logical question given that they were intentionally leaving people on the outside looking in. There's a problem in this church, right? Deep problem in this church. And it's exposed in communion. And that's why I say communion in some degree, in many respects. In communion, we see our judgment. In this church at Corinth, it shows how far they've strayed from the generosity of Christ. It, it, it should call them back to some of the teachings of Christ. Uh, Matthew 25, 41 through 46, Jesus is giving a, giving a parable about the kingdom of God. And he talks about how uh, uh, God, uh, the king of kings, God the Father, he'll, he'll let, let folks into his kingdom that have uh, demonstrated uh, hope and compassion and mercy uh, for those that are on the margins, for those that have been excluded, because that's showing a heart that's been transformed by the grace of Christ. On the flip side, those that refuse to, to reach out and minister are going to be excluded. Jesus says this in Matthew uh, 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you are accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. You know, that, that, uh, that passage says, when did we see you hungry or sick or, and, and, and not uh, hungry or thirsty and not minister to you? It was happening for them at communion, right? Like those were showing up, they were feasting on the food that they brought, and they were leaving their brothers and sisters uh, to feel the pains of hunger. And so when there's this, from the teachings of Christ that we see, when there's this stubborn refusal to respond to those who are hurting, it shows the heart of someone who's, who's, who's either never been part of the kingdom of God or forgotten about the, the work and the redemption that Christ has done in their life. 
it shows that they're refusing to allow the transformative nature of God's love, grace, and mercy to take hold of their hearts. Communion should call us out of an individualistic approach to faith and help us see the needs of others. And, and, and if, if the church in Corinth had allowed that to happen, it would have helped them, um, well, it would have helped them stop kicking Jesus out of their community because that's essentially what they were doing. By turning these people away, they weren't uh, allowing him to be in and part of it. And so what Paul does is he returns them back to the example of Christ's generosity by resetting the practice. Um, and these are the words that we read. Uh, these are the verses that we read almost every week at Grace City. For I received from the Lord what also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul calls them back again to Jesus, Jesus emptying himself, giving himself to others. It's not selfish. It's not individualistic. It's a way of generosity that pours into the community, that sees the needs of the community and responds to them and enables the community. And so in this way, in communion, we see our hope, right? We encounter our judgment and that we see our need for Christ. We see, uh, the, we, we see what's represented, the sacrifice that was given in response to our sin. So that's our judgment, but we also encounter his love and grace in that he provides that sacrifice for us. In communion, you can see both our judgment and our hope both the justice of God and the mercy of God. And so that's why I, I, I would say, I, I think communion can show what is off, can help us become aware of what's off in our life, but point us toward the solution as well. And this is where Paul continues to write, verse 27, or, 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 or speaks to how it happens for us. Verse 27, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Communion calls us for examination. Like, we, we can't do this flippantly, and, and it's a trap that I fall into, right? But every time we come forward, and I know it's a small piece of bread, and we're just dipping into the cup, but that's a moment where we have to ask those hard questions. God, is there stuff in my life that doesn't need to be there? Is there stuff in my life that's off in my relationship with you? Is there stuff that's in my life that's off in my relationships with others, in my relationship with the church? And so when we come forward for communion, it's, it's God, help me examine myself. Help me come before you in an honest way, responsive to your holiness, responsive to your righteousness, responsive to the holiness that you call us to, to live and to follow after in your word. So it's, it's examining ourselves, looking to see whatever sin we have in our life, confessing it, and 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 and. and seeing that, that that brokenness is there again communion is our judgment in that respect and that it calls for this personal examination that we have to examine ourselves before we enter into this communal meal but then 29 is a loaded statement 29 is a loaded statement for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of christ eat and drink judgment on themselves there are you see, and i need you to stick with me all right because we're going to go kind of two lip, two different levels with this there are two different applications of this verse, right, true, steps that you need to take, steps that I need to take whenever we come forward for communion, all right? And, and, and the first one is, is we've already hit on it. We examine ourselves, we see our sin, and that helps us discern the body of Christ. We, we see our sin, our sin demands a sacrifice. We know that Christ made that sacrifice when he gave his body for us on the cross. 
That's step one, examining ourselves, or application one, I should say. Examining ourselves, our sin, our sin puts us in need of a Savior, puts us in need of Christ and his sacrifice that helps us discern the body of, of Christ as we come forward for communion. But the second step that we also need to take is we need to remember Paul has just rebuked them. Paul has just rebuked them for failing to appreciate the collective, for failing to appreciate the church. He's just rebuked them for failing to appreciate the body of Christ. So when we come forward for communion, we not only need to, uh, need, need to examine our own sin and reflect on the sacrifice of Christ, which enables us to have life, we're also called to regard the body of Christ that is the church and our relationship to it. We're called to discern the body of Christ that is the church and our relationship to it. And here's where there's another two steps of application. One, have I excluded anyone or kept anyone or given the message to anyone that they are not welcome to come in and be a part of this community of faith? Now, maybe this is me assuming the best of us at Grace City. I don't think there's any of us in here that would, would you know, if there's a line of people be like, you're welcome, you're not, you're welcome, you're not. Like, I don't think we would go through and like kick people out in that way, Right? But I, I, hey, there, there have been times where I've held back an invitation because I thought, man, they probably wouldn't come back to that. And in, and, and in that way, I'm, I'm kind of I'm personally excluding them out of it. And, and I don't think I'm, I'm alone in that. And so in, in that way, I'm kind of ex- excluding someone or pushing someone to the margins rather than just doing what Paul calls us to do and just practice hospitality. You know, I, I know we're, we're not, we're, won't ever be a church for all people, but we should have a stance that all are welcome. And, and not just a stance, we should be actively, proactively trying to show that we welcome any and all to come and be a part of our community. Are there people that we have rejected or excluded with our lack of invitation, and I would say in so, de- in so doing, kick Jesus out of our church, right? Because this is what it's calling us to, discerning the body. Are there people who aren't here who should be? And then the second question that I would say you need to ask in that is, are you holding yourself back from the community? Have you excluded yourself from the body of Christ? And I would say uh, this category might be like, uh, maybe you've heard this phrase, like the consumer Christian. Like, I'll, I'll just show up, I'll just, uh, you know, I'll consume this sermon or the music, and then I'm out the door and, and on, on to live or do whatever I want to do. That, this should call us out of that, right? A- am, I, am I excluding myself from the body of Christ? No, I need to connect to it and, and know that Christ and His grace has enabled me to have a relationship with the Lord. And now also Christ's grace is enabling me, calling me to be bound to my brothers and sisters in faith, that I'm giving grace to them, that I'm learning how to give grace in these situations. And that doesn't happen when we just drop in and drop in and, and drop out. We are discerned the body of Christ and our role and responsibility within it to each other. Because I've said the phrase, and it's almost cliche, Lord's Supper is to be a place of, of family reunion. But that will only happen when we treat it as such. It will only happen when we do it as such. And, and so Paul is, is helping them see this, you know, to discern the body of Christ when we come forward for communion. Otherwise, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. That's, you should hear that as a warning. Yes, and it gets even more clear in the next verse. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Do, do, do you hear how serious this is? The, the way that we interact with this, right, if, we, if we're not doing this in a, in a way that's intentional, in a way that's reflective, we are inviting God's corrective judgment and discipline into our lives. Uh, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, here's the why. We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. 
So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further instructions. Paul's helping them see that the gravity of this action, that we are to do this with intention, with examination, calling us back to, the, to Christ's sacrifice, calling us back to Christ's body that is the church, and, and do this in a way that is intentional in a way that exhibits our oneness with Christ. Otherwise, we, we do invite the Lord's discipline into our lives. Uh, let me say this at the end of the passage, just because it got a little bit confusing, and, and look here, I want to teach the text correctly, um, where he talks about um, uh, to eat together. Um, when, when, you, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Uh, remember, there were folks that were, well, that goes all the way back to the people that were bringing the food, they would eat, and then apparently um, after they got done, they were allowing the leftovers to go uh, to the poor or the hungry, if there were any. And so Paul's like, look, just everybody eat together. There's not that waiting line. And then also, some of them were saying, well, I'm still hungry when I get there. It's like, well, you've got food. Eat at home first. And then when you get here, uh, then when you get here, you can wait on everybody else. And so a specific situation that Paul's writing to, hard to see the personal application there, but go to the principle uh, beneath the instruction. Paul's calling them to consider the needs of the other. That's all that is. Consider the needs of the other. Why? We're one body, one family. Christ has uh, one family because Christ has poured Himself out for uh, the family of God. Communion reminds us of that self-sacrifice, reminds us of that love, reminds us of the devotion to the family of God. And so, in that way, communion can also be um, a, a sense of, of charge to us to now go and, and embody that virtue and ethic in the way that we live. Uh, John thirteen thirty four. Christ says, "A new command I give to you." Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Communion reminds us, reminds us of the promise that Christ has made to the church, the sacrificial work that he did for our redemption that was prompted by his love, prompted by his grace, and now he calls us to share that love and grace to the rest of his family. When we don't do this, we damage the witness. When we don't do this, we hinder the ministry that we are called to engage, and we invite judgment ourselves, and I would even say judgment on our churches. Real life, practical example of this uh, comes from history, and uh, this is, uh, I don't want to say my favorite, one of my favorite stories, because it's a dark story, and it's a sad story, um, but the optimistic side, well, you'll hear the optimistic side on the back end, and uh, this is a story when we first did communion or started communion at Grace City two and a half years ago I shared this with you so maybe it's a refresher for some of you but during the uh, during the middle 1800s there was tension between the Dutch settlers of South Africa and the indigenous African people all right there was racial tension between those two groups and it was felt in the church um, the Dutch Reformed Church was the national church of South Africa and in 1857 they all met together to address this issue the racial tension that they were feeling and the solution that the Dutch Reformed Church proposed was that they said it's, it's desirable for the races to, to, to worship together. But where that creates an issue, uh, they can form separate churches or observe separate sacraments, separate ordinances within the same church. Okay, as you can imagine, that resolution had disastrous consequences. Disastrous consequences because very quickly, you know, they're, they're, even within the same church, there were separate communions, which is a simply, essentially Jim Crow laws happening within the church. And so it, it began to happen. And then adding to the tragedy was that the Dutch Reformed Church, with it being the national church of South Africa, officially sanctioned by the state, the state felt as though now it had theological backing uh, to enforce segregation, which gave rise to apartheid. 
which didn't come to an end until the end of the 20th century and still dealing with the ramifications of, of the stuff. And, 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 and I, w- I would say, you know, it was an incredible, um, devastating, damaging expression of communion and brokenness in the church. And it was it's judgment of, of, of that brokenness in the church because it just how, just think of how much it crippled the witness uh, of the gospel in that area. And in communion, they should have seen their judgment. Right, and in communion, they, they, they should have seen their brokenness. In communion, they should have seen we're not one. We're excluding our brother and sister in Christ. The Dutch settlers were overlooking the South Africans' hunger for justice and basic human dignity and self-worth. All the while, they were enjoying their privilege and their power. There was no unity. There was no harmony. There was no oneness in the body of Christ. Fractured and divided, a segregated communion speaks to this. But in communion, and here's the optimistic part of me, in communion, there's not just judgment. There's hope as well. Right, So if a sinful expression of communion led to such brokenness and damage on a societal level, might a worshipful expression point towards redemption and reconciliation? Right? Or like, could the same principle work in reverse? It, like, if, if we as a church, if we commit ourselves not just to the physical act of communion, which we've done, but uh, again, just a simple gesture. But if we as a family of God commit ourselves to the example that Christ gave of loving and serving and sacrificing for others in our family and others who are yet to be a part of this family of Grace City, if we poured out this example that Christ has set for us in loving and serving and sacrificing for others in our family, what measure of redemption would this picture? What measure of redemption would this not just picture, would this bring about for our church, for our lives, for our, our family, for our neighborhoods, and for our society? If the church came together to weekly, weekly to the Lord's table to celebrate his promise to give life, his work to redeem us from our sin, and give us his righteousness, if we gather together to celebrate the bond that he enables us to have with his father, the bond that we are able to have with him, and the bond that we are able to have with one another. Imagine how powerful of a message the church would be able to communicate. I mean, then Galatians 3.28, it's not just a hopeful verse, it is being lived out. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are one in the body of Christ. We'd be taking up the cries of our brothers and sisters in faith who are walking through adversity in their life, struggling financially, struggling racially, struggling relationally. We would take up the cries of our brothers and sisters in faith who are hunger for justice and opportunity and equality, and we would be living out the truth of our faith that we are one in the body communion symbolizes both our judgment and our hope by recognizing the work Christ has accomplished for the family of God. So when we come forward for communion, we should be thinking, I'm one in the family of God. I'm here. Who's not here? Who needs to be here? Who needs to know that they are part of this as well? And so uh, today, um, it's kind of, it's, this series is is interesting to me in that, you know, a lot of times when I end my sermons, I'm like, uh, I'm trying to find application for you to, you know, tomorrow morning when the alarm clock goes off, this is what you do, or like Wednesday when, you know, when you go to work, this is what, how this applies there. Uh, This series applies right now, right? Like this series calls us to the, to this interaction. And so um, as we come forward, there's uh, one point I want to make and one reminder I want to give. One point that I want to make is, um, if you don't know, uh, I th- although I think most do know when they come, they experience the, the bread often in our communion is made by you. Um, and, uh, and so it's made, uh, I, I love that because it, it reminds us of the body of Christ, 
made by the body of Christ for the body of Christ. And, and so we, we do this um, not just because it tastes better, although it does. <laughs> and uh, there's even times after, after service is over, I see some people getting bits off of it and giving it to their kids, which is hilarious, and I don't judge that at all. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we do this because it, it is just that reminder, again, right, that we are joined together in Christ. We are bound together. We are one in the family of God. And it's just another way that we show we serve one another, we're connected to one another in that way. So just be, uh, just know that about this experience. But the, the reminder that I want to give, or really the challenge to Paul that I want to give at the end of this, as we come forward for communion, follow the words of Paul. Discern the body of Christ. The one application that I want you to make this morning, reflect on the love and grace of Jesus that he's displayed for you through his sacrifice on the cross, and be drawn to the body of Christ that is the church. Maybe it's you that need to take another step of commitment in and connection to the local body of Christ. Maybe you're aware of others that aren't here that need to be here. And let this be a sense of calling to extend an invitation that they too can come and be a part of the body of Christ.